Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation is with Andrea L. Turpin, Associate Professor of History at Baylor University. Her book, A New Moral Vision, Gender, Religion, and the Changing Purposes of American Higher Education, published by Cornell University Press, is the topic of this show. Turpin begins with the early institutions of higher learning for women and the contest over the idea of separate and unique education. She examines the gender history of both elite private and state colleges, evangelical Protestant commitments to personal conversion and missions fueled women's higher education beyond rudimentary instructions preparing them for domestic life. The objective was a godly social order based on the individual's relationship with God. After the Civil War, the influence of religious liberals increased emphasis on research and a growing demand for women's education instigated a reevaluation of the university's role in the moral preparation. Separate men's, women's, and co-educational institutions multiplied and moved toward seeking the public good in gender-specific ways. Women trained for social service professions, men for government or institutional leadership. The shift away from personal piety to gender character formation and service to the nation created increasingly rigid notions of separate male and female cultures in the public life of the progressive era. Turpin's examination highlights the role of higher education in constructing the moral and gender map of a nation. Here is my conversation with Andrea L. Turpin. Now let me introduce you to the author, Andrea L. Turpin. Hello, Andrea. Welcome to, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing our thoughts with our audience. You have a, we have a lot to talk about because women's education is a very big subject. Uh, but before we get into the book, tell us about yourself and your background, how you came to write uh, a new moral vision. Well, let's see. I mean, my background goes all the way back to when I started undergrad. I was an astrophysics major, but that's probably not terribly relevant. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, Yes, I had what I like to refer to as a deconversion experience where I was staring at the board and I just suddenly saw Greek letters and I knew what they meant, but I realized I didn't want to do that with my life. I liked the ideas of science, but not the practice. I was in a wonderful course at Princeton with Anthony Grafton at the time um, that I loved on history. And so I became a historian of science to try to meld my love of those ideas with a field where I could actually write rather than uh, do lab work. And over time, that became a broader and broader interest in intellectual history. And I'd always had an interest in the intersection of science and religion, and that became an interest in the intersection of intellectual history and religious history, and ultimately an intersection of intellectual, religious, and gender history as I developed um, over time through my uh, master's program. Okay. And this topic, why this, this topic? This topic, uh, when I was in my master's program, I read a uh, piece by one of my professors there on 
how the evangelist Charles Finney had been actually a college president and had these ideas about how you should run a college seminar. And I realized I loved educational theory and the development of that over time as a topic. And that professor put me on to the founding of Mount Holyoke uh, because I was in Massachusetts at the time and had access to those archives. And Mary Lyon, the founder of Mount Holyoke, had particular interests um, in how you could meld ideas about gender at the time with ideas about education at the time with her ideas about religion and how it could open up a space for women in higher education. When I went on to my Ph.D. work, I uh, read up on all of the works that had been done on the role of religion in higher education and all of the works that had been done on the entrance of women into higher education. And I realized that rarely did the twain meet. Uh, it was a huge gap in the literature. The role of religion in higher education was changing significantly. What we normally refer to as the secularization of higher ed between, say, the end of the Civil War and the beginning of World War One. And it's the exact same time period that women entered higher education in large numbers, reaching almost 50 percent by 1900. And yet those were two entirely separate literatures that never talked to each other. And so I developed my topic because I figured, well, they must have something to say to each other. Well, you know, the women's education is a huge topic, like you just explained, but also it's very big because it was so important in the advancement of women generally in the culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like the first thing that women were advocating for. Before they were advocating for the vote, they were advocating Absolutely. for education. We want Absolutely. to be educated. And so, well, it's interesting is that how you tie that to some sort of religious motivations, okay, the religious motivations to educate women. So before before we get into all that, I want to know how what, what did early America education institutions look like for women, and how did people look at education before we get into the higher ed stuff? What was so it do like? You mean, do you mean lower ed? So common schools and academies, or also colleges in early America? How far could a woman go before there was Mount Holyoke? Um, Before there was Mount Holyoke, and specifically Oberlin, a woman could, um, in the colonial period, you'd have dame schools. So uh, you could go and get a functional common school education, um, and increasingly also an academy education. And honestly, that's all that most men did, too. College was for the very, very small proportion of the population, uh, 1% of the American population at that point in time. All men, uh, that 1% was going to be ministers, lawyers, doctors, or educated gentlemen, part of the international community of letters. But honestly, most men didn't do that. Most men went to uh, just common schooling or no schooling. And those who went and did more did academy-level schooling, something that we academies or seminaries at the time up through about the 1820s and 30s referred to a three-year program that would be like our upper high school, lower college. And men and women could do that increasingly. Um, and that's what, that's as far as women could go. But to be fair, it's as far as the bulk of men went either. In other words, it, it, would you say that most of the people, uh, the institutions you're talking about in your book are about e- the education of elite, of the elites? Uh, the institutions, well, it depends on how you mean elite. The colleges that existed before women were admitted certainly generally focused on the elite in terms of wealth as well as in terms of motivation and interest. But they typically had scholarships, particularly for the ones that wanted to be ministers, because those did not often come from the richer families. The first institutions to admit women actually intentionally targeted poorer women as well 
as an Arab's case poor men. So I would say they were not elite. They were boundary breaking in admitting not only women, but admitting poor students as well. So, but if you're a poor woman and not, not many people are getting an education period, that kind of level right. of education, you really had to be really motivated and yes. somebody had to see that you were special. I mean, you had to really be special to even get the scholarship. Yes, but money is a good motivation for women, at least. Um, and one of the very few occupations available to single women was teacher. And so getting the training to be a teacher to support yourself or to support your family was um, a clear motivation for doing that. Okay. What was the role of evangelical religion in the development of higher education for women? Why is that important? Because you do emphasize it. Mm-hmm. I do. When I teach um, the entrance of women into higher education to my students, I talk about a multiplicity of motivations. One of those was what you just referred to, uh, the need to make money. <laughs> uh, one of those was that women just wanted to learn. And so when education became available, they were all for it. And one of those was revivals that were sweeping the nation, what we refer to as historians, as the Second Great Awakening of the early 1800s. And during that time, uh, the general Protestant revivalist ethos was once you get yourself saved, you need to go to work saving the rest of the world, not only in terms of conversions, but in terms of social reform. And so women who got saved, they wanted an outlet for that, some way that they could help the rest of the world. Uh, and they were cut off in all but the case of Quakers from the ministry for the most part. Um, there were a few exceptions. And so they could do it through teaching. Men could go and be ministers if they felt so inclined, but women could go and be teachers. And so a lot of the founders of the very earliest, highest available education for women in the antebellum period were motivated because they were, they had experienced evangelical conversion. They wanted to save the world. They wanted to get more people involved in saving the world. They wanted to make a space for women to do that, um, even beyond the home. And higher education was a logical space for that. And part of it was there was an assumption there of there was an equality before God. And so that every believer, whether they were male or female, had this responsibility of evangelizing. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's what, what I call yeah. in my book is just having more bodies for the work. Uh, you want to get as many souls saved as possible. You want to get as many people out there doing it as possible. And those are women and men. It's a very, it, it undercuts some of the assumptions of separate spheres by just having a pragmatic push to get as many evangelists out there as possible. Okay. Now, what about the, uh, these higher education for women, the first true higher education for women? There were some competing or contested ideas about what that looked like and what it, what the actual the curriculum is going to be. Can you uh, talk about that before the, before sure. the Civil War, of course? Sure. Uh, in the book, I talk about uh, Catherine Beecher and Mary Lyon as being the exemplars of two competing versions of what higher education for women could be. Uh, both of them were educational pioneers of a high order. Catherine Beecher, of course, uh, daughter of the Famous minister Lyman Beecher, who was a prohibitionist, most famously sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, right? He wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, sister also of Henry Ward Beecher, the famous liberal Protestant minister. I call the Beechers the Kennedys of the 19th century. So that, that's who she was. And her vision, um, her father was an evangelical preacher. She never experienced conversion. She had a, a broader liberal Protestant mentality. And she thought women were even more important than ministers in raising up the next generation of Christians. So she wanted to make a space 
for um, educated women. She thought that they were important not only for the nation as teachers, but for the church as the people who are most involved in raising up the next generation. She wanted a higher education for women that was parallel to but distinct from that for men. So she wanted to have a women's college that trained you in specifically fields that women as women would go into. She understood that to be teaching, nursing, homemaking. Uh, she wanted formal instruction at the level that men would receive for ministry, law, medicine. And she wanted women teachers, and this was her uh, sort of pioneering feminist outlook on this, to be paid the same as male college professors. She really wanted high pay for uh, the women professors at an institution like this. The competing vision by Mary Lyon wanted to give women the same curriculum that college men received. And she wanted to make that available to as many women as possible. Um, she did it because she thought that God was doing a new thing through women's higher education. And she wanted to leave what women went into, what kind of fields they went into, open to God. So she gave them as broad a training as possible. The sacrifice she made to make that happen, um, to make it available to as many women as possible, is that she paid her teachers hardly at all. Uh, so women were not making the equivalent of what male professors would make at all. But partly because of that, Lyon was a better fundraiser, right? She didn't require as much money to do what she was doing. And her institution, Mount Holyoke, became a pattern for later women's colleges, whereas Catherine Beecher never quite got a model institution off the ground. Now, Beecher seems to be the, the woman who invented home economics as a discipline. Yeah, you could say that. She was most famous for her book on domestic economy that came out in 1841. Okay. So when, so, but this, at this point, Women are, are not going to, like, Harvard. Correct. Right? For a long time. Yeah. It's just these are separate institutions. Even though they might want to give women an equal uh, education like Stowe wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you mean like uh, Lyon wanted to do? Yeah, like Lyon. Excuse me. Lyon wanted to do. No worries. It wasn't, it wasn't a – it was, it was – it could be equal in value, but it wasn't the same. We, we, we hesitate to use this term, right? But you've got almost a separate but equal. You're right. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> vision going on here. Yes. And Mount Holyoke was not truly equal when it was founded. It was three years only, which was the pattern for a seminary or an academy, not a full four year curriculum. It would get up to four years. And that was Lyon's long term goal. And it was achieved after her death. But even the separate before the Civil War, the highest available single sex education for women was not fully equal yet except at Oberlin uh, and a few of the colleges that uh, would pattern themselves after Oberlin, like Hillsdale and Antioch, which opened before the Civil War. Let's talk, to, talk about Oberlin because it seems to have the most radical oh, yes. of, of visions. It, it was radical in all sorts of ways. Uh, so Oberlin, same kind of idea as Mount Holyoke, wanted to train as many people as possible to get the word of God out, generally trained the men to be ministers and the women to be teachers, but didn't hit that really hard, they would allow flexibility in what women and men would go on to do. What's novel about Oberlin is twofold. Um, It founded in 1833. It had different tracks for men and women, but some women in 1837 wanted to take the full out bachelor's degree, uh, which at that time was a pretty set curriculum across all colleges. It wasn't what we think of as electives and majors. And the, the faculty met and they decided Sure, why not? And so as far as I know, the very first women to ever 
enter a true bachelor's degree course, did so in 1837 at Oberlin and took their degrees in 1841. There were three of them that graduated with a true BA in 1841. The thing that's so radical about that, that's radical in and of itself, that that happened at a co-educational institution, is that simultaneously that institution was biracial. So think about this. In the 1830s, when there's this huge concern for miscegenation or blacks and whites marrying each other, Oberlin not only became the first truly co-educational college, it did it while being biracial, which was, it's just mind blowing. So it's like a den of iniquity. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they saw themselves as a den of righteousness because they were truly opening their education to rich and poor, male and female, black and white, from this motivation I call evangelical pragmatism to just get as many people out there as possible who are well-trained for God. Okay, now when are the, so let's talk about when the, uh, the movement towards co-education. Mm-hmm. And it, and it was sort of a slow slide into it. It wasn't like full throttle. It was like, okay, we'll have a something for women over here. And it just became more and more. Talk, talk about that. Like, especially at Harvard and places like that. Oh, wow. So yes, co-education ends up being very, very different in the East and in the West. Uh, so Oberlin, not, I think this is not a coincidence, right? It was founded in Ohio. Um, and then the next two robustly co-educational institutions were also in the West, another one in Ohio, Antioch, and then um, what would become Hillsdale in Michigan. Western state universities typically founded all male, but pretty soon became all female. They were new territories. I'm sorry, not all female, co-ed. There were new territories. There weren't as many people. Uh, honestly, those universities needed funds, right? You admit multiple people, you have more funds, and there's a demand by the populace that they educate women and that their tax dollars should apply to their daughters too. They wanted their daughters trained um, to be able to work if they didn't get married. So true co-education grows up in the West, 1850s, 60s, definitely by the 1870s. The East is another story entirely. The East is where we have the really long-standing old, dignified, traditional colleges, Harvard, the very first, 1636, Uh, Yale, very young, I believe, 1701, Princeton, 1746, I believe. And these institutions could make the opposite argument when it came to money. They were founded private, but with a sense that they should benefit the whole country, as well as just um, the interests of their donors or the interests of the denomination that founded them. And they made the argument, our donors gave us money so that we could train the people who are going to be society's leaders. It's a bad use of our money if we train women. Like They're not going to be in the top professions. And that's not what we were founded to do. So those institutions really resist, for that and other reasons, um, becoming co-educational. It sounds like the uh, places like Oberlin are much more evangelical. Therefore, they're more interested in reaching the world for, for Christ, while... The people in the, on the East Coast are more interested in, in producing leaders for the nation. Yes, although I don't want to make it quite that, quite that divisive. I think an emphasis, yes, but it's, it's a little bit more complex than that. A place like Princeton, um, after the Civil War was still evangelical. They just weren't the type of evangelical I label evangelical pragmatists who would totally override everything to just get the word out. Uh, they were more the dignified version, if you will. Um, they they 
wanted to instill traditional religion in their students. They wanted to foster conversion in their students, but they understood the purpose, the historic purpose of a college to be to train leaders. So they took in only men and wanted to convert them to become Christians to do what men generally do, but with the ethical center that would come from being a Christian. So how did the, in those, in those uh, East on the East, how did the women's education differ from the men's supposedly education? It was supposed to be a co-educational institution, but they, it wasn't fully co-educational. So the East, just one way that colleges that were men's colleges could turn away demand that they accept women was by establishing what became known as coordinate colleges. The most famous of these is, of course, Radcliffe, attached to Harvard. Um, the women who were behind the founding of Radcliffe, their concern was to spread higher education to women. That's what they wanted. They wanted women to have an education as equal as Harvard. Harvard got behind it as a way of keeping women out from Harvard. Right? Um, you see the same pattern happening at Princeton, which I'm a Princeton undergraduate. And I never knew this. So they don't talk about this a lot. Princeton had a brief coordinate college for 10 years from 1886 to 1896 called Evelyn. And then it folded because donors priorities were for the men. Uh, Harvard's, of course, Radcliffe, on the other hand, continued to thrive. And the way a coordinate college worked is um, we professors can can identify with this. Right. Professors didn't make as much money as they thought they should. And at a men's college, they. were offered the opportunity to reteach their same classes to women down the street at a different location to keep them separate. And those women would be given a degree that at Harvard was countersigned by the president of Harvard as equivalent to a Harvard bachelor's degree, but it was not a Harvard bachelor's degree. They pushed to have those women be truly considered Harvard graduates and the presidents refused. Okay. <laughs> so let me uh, ask you about, there were some changes also before the, the Civil War. There were some changes that was happening in terms of philosophical changes or uh, theological changes that basically it went from this idea that education was really uh, rooted in a vertical relationship between the, the individual and God mm-hmm. to education being uh, put in a place for how we could do good to other human beings for the good of humanity. Right. So it went from a primary motivation was to serve God to mm-hmm. a primary motivation of serving your fellow man. Mm-hmm. Okay. How, and women. Yeah. How, and women. <laughs> how did this, uh, how did this change, uh, what the curriculum looked like? And uh, along those lines, you've got, uh, state schools and private institutions, and they're kind of going at it a different way. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? It's a complex yes, of huge, questions huge there. huge topic. <laughs> no. uh, one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is bring together the changes that are taking place um, within American religious and intellectual history, um, which with the changes that were taking place within the history of education for both women and men. Uh, the leaders of all of these colleges, the state universities, the private men's colleges, the coordinate women's colleges, the independent women's colleges, all throughout the time period that I'm talking about, from the 1830s all the way up until, you know, around 1920, um, all of those leaders were, for the most part, Protestants of some stripe at the highest levels of the institutions that were really the national trendsetters. So even though we think of that um, as the time period of secularization, 
it's really more a time period of changing attitudes or understandings of religion and how it ought to intersect with uh, educational formation of undergraduates. Because you didn't say, I noticed that you didn't use the word secularization of higher ed much. You didn't use that term. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Why is I I, I can kind of surmise why that is, but can you explain why you didn't do that? Yes. We assume that the word secularization means that there is no more religious content to something. Now, of course, the word actually has technical meanings which refer to whether an institution is controlled by a religious body or not. Um, But I wanted to be more precise about the nature of the experience if you're an undergraduate. And also the implications are if you're a Protestant undergraduate and if you're not. I mean, what's your experience if you're a Catholic undergraduate or a Jewish undergraduate or an agnostic undergraduate? Is your environment truly secular? And I would say no, not at all during this time period. Uh, There's just a changing nature and role of religion that you're encountering in your your undergraduate education. Yeah, what you're saying, it's re- it re- religion is changing from within. It's not something yes. that's happening to religion. Religion itself is changing. Yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. Absolutely. Okay. So the dominant religion um, of the leaders of higher ed before the Civil War was very broadly understood what we would call evangelical Protestantism, you know, 19th century style doesn't have the same political implications it does today. And it moved to what we would refer to as modernist or liberal Protestantism being dominant among the leaders after the Civil War um, as a result of internal intellectual changes um, within Protestant Christianity in America. I come up with a system to talk about both of these styles of religion that I think is helpful for understanding how this would actually affect you if you're an undergraduate woman or man. Both styles of Protestant Christianity were concerned with the fact that they believed that humans' relationship with God is broken and not what it's supposed to be, and humans' relationship with one another is broken and not what it's supposed to be. Evangelicals tended to think if you fix the God part first, you'll also fix the interpersonal part, whereas modernists or liberals tended to think if you fix the interpersonal part first, you'll also fix the God part. Um, so when they're trying to instruct undergraduates in religious beliefs, evangelicals are going to tend to try to facilitate what we would call conversion. Uh, the idea that you repent of your sins before God, you receive forgiveness through faith in Christ, you receive a new heart, and then out of that new heart, you, you love your neighbor better. Modernists or liberals will emphasize more the teachings of Christ rather than, say, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for forgiveness of sins that evangelicals taught. And the teachings of Christ had, in many respects, to do with how to love your neighbor well. So they would talk about and try to think out in more detail, what does it mean to love your neighbor well? What's your place in the social order? What should a good social order look like? And they believed that if you began to get that right and your heart on that right, that would automatically make you right towards God. One of the things I wanted to ask you about that is, that uh, what I was driving at in the private schools uh, early on from the very beginning, you had people mandatory, you know, Bible courses, mandatory yep. chapel, mandatory yep. prayer, all these kind of re- yep. re- outside of the the basic stuff of you know, learning, you know, Greek or or philosophy or whatever. You, the, yes. the, you and then in the state schools on the west, the west, you talk about I think of the uh, University of Michigan. Yeah, uh, you know they they're not they're not de- they're not demanding chapel. They're, because it's a state, I don't think they are. Yes, they 
sure. That's the thing. Uh, state universities until the 1870s absolutely had required chapel and required courses in Protestant doctrine. Okay. All right. I wanted to see if there was a, there was a move away from that more and more. We don't yeah. have to, yeah. we might have chapel. We don't have to ask them to require the students. Right. Go it's to optional. It. Yes. Basically, one of the things that I argue and how this affects, and we'll get to how this affects women and men in a minute, but how this affects students in general during this time period is if you've got a more broadly evangelical outlook to what it means to to make a moral human being, a religious human being, uh, you've got to, and it's important that you get your relationship with God right first, you've got to be somewhat explicit about what your relationship with God is supposed to look like and who God is. So you make students go to chapel you know, and worship God in a particular way. You make them take classes on exactly what God is like or the faith is like. On a modernist understanding, uh, the more important part is the ethical push to religion, uh, what it, your faith is motivating you to do. And to get students to do that, you don't have to have the same kind of explicit religious instruction. Um, so they make chapel optional, sometimes actually encourage, so as to not discourage students from going for rebe- rebelling against it. You can make it cool because it's like this thing that is offered that, you know, the students who are particularly ethically, you know, committed go and do. Um, and you stop requiring courses in a particular type of doctrine because you've got students from multiple traditions increasingly attending higher education. But there's still this ethical push and it's motivated from a Protestant perspective. But the means are less exclusive. I want to ask you about the, the co-educational situation, the social environment of a co-educational <laughs> school early on. One of the things, of course, people are, would be concerned about at that time, you know, young men and young women mixing sort of away from home, kind of free to mix. And so there, ha- there were some uh, things put in, you know, there was reinforcements of, you know, house mothers and things like that. Yep. To and rules about when a, a young woman had to be in her house or parietal, yes, yes. All, so, was that a big issue in terms of trying to regulate the interaction between young men and women? And were people really concerned about that when they were starting thinking about you know co education? Do we really want to do this? Was, what problems is this going to cause? Where are we going to put the women? Where are they going to live? How are they going to mix with the young men? Are they going to be in the same classroom? That sort of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People were super concerned about that. The University of Michigan, when it was trying to decide whether to become coeducational, did this whole study where they asked a lot of people. Cornell, when it was trying to become coeducational, did this whole study where they asked a lot of people. And you go and you read through the pros and the cons that they've collected from thinkers across the nation. And it's a huge fear that, oh, no, what are unsupervised young men and young women going to do? Because regardless of the exact religious uh, angle taken by leaders, they shared a fairly common commitment to you know what we would consider, quote unquote, traditional sexual ethics, that you did not want uh, male and female students um, mixing in inappropriate ways. That said, uh, the solution was broader than we might think. You might think that every single institution that finally admitted women put really tight restrictions on them. But money played a role, and it, it costs money to place really tight restrictions on women or to build dorms to house them on campus separately. And some institutions, Michigan, for example, just straight up admitted them with no regulation whatsoever and said, go find a boarding house. And in the extracurriculum in the 1870s and the 1880s, men and women did all the same activities together. It only actually, and this might surprise us, it became more restrictive in the 1890s, not less as time went on. And women and men began to separate out into separate um, undergraduate subcultures. 
very much in keeping with the time, right? This is the era of Teddy Roosevelt and uh, his fears of race suicide and, and you need to be manly. And uh, there's a whole push towards a heavy emphasis on what it means to be a man or a woman during that time period. Yeah, it was amazing to me that you really, that how much uh, of this mixing really didn't cause a lot of problems. It no. seemed that they kind of, everybody was really well behaved and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. I, I, this is probably, it may be noteworthy that partly the, the first place to try it was a very religiously intense institution, you know, Oberlin. So there's a lot of self-regulation. There's a lot of self-regulation in Oberlin. Michigan, it's, it's not quite, it's not that kind of a place when they admit women in the 1870s. But this is the first generation of women to go to college. The women themselves are quite serious, so they wouldn't be pioneers. It's by the time that you get to the 1890s that you get more of the second generation party crowd. That, that goes because they're rich and it's fun. <laughs> okay, let me. So let's go into. You say now this the, the changes, the theological changes from God centered to sort of more humanistic centered religion mm-hmm. uh, had an effect on how uh, it. You said it, it gendered the curriculum in very specific ways. That's why your that's why your book is called a new moral vision because morality became sort of split. Can you explain? You're probably going to explain it better than I can say it. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I would, I would push back on the word curriculum. I would say the entire um, bent of a student's moral formation altered, but it wasn't just limited to, or even primarily about specifically the curriculum. Okay. So, yes. So what I'm arguing here is women entered higher education in large numbers during the same time that you have the shift from an evangelical to a modernist spirituality, from a sort of more vertical God-oriented to a horizontal human-oriented spirituality. And institutions, it was no longer cool to be denominational, to be evangelical, to be regional, uh, to, to attract funding and national prominence during changes in higher education at this time. You needed to have a national reputa- reputation So institutions began to use what they decided on the woman question as a new identity marker that would replace their previous religious identity marker. And as they did that, and as they focused increasingly on inculcating in students a concern for their role in the social order, for their how they served other people, um, they began to use their new identity as I'm a men's college. Previously, everybody was a men's college. Now you're making a conscious choice to be a men's college or I'm a women's college. Previously, women's colleges didn't even exist or I'm a coeducational college. Um, this means I have a particular vision of how men and women should interact in society. Previously, those did not exist. Uh, and they use that to focus how they try to form students to do a good job, um, be moral citizens in making a contribution to wider American society and culture and politics. And so this focus on no longer trying to get students to first have a relationship with God and then God directs them to do whatever. Instead, you try to teach students how to be good moral people in society. It becomes a very gendered vision of how to do that because it's happening concurrently with the time when an institution is starting to really define themselves as a men's college or a women's college or a coeducational institution as opposed to, say, a Presbyterian or a Methodist. Right. Instead of saying we're training all our students, men and women, to serve God, it's yep. almost like we're, we're, gonna, we're training our men to go into government and business yep. and things that, yes. and we're training our women to serve 
sort of make basically as an extension of the home. Yes, but it's not quite as regressive as that sounds. <laughs> no, it sounds regressive, but you know, social housekeeping. Yes, social housekeeping. Uh, and I see this as a, a strength and a weakness of particularly the women's colleges at this time period who moved to a more modernist spirituality. Uh, the strength is they were trying to make a new field for women besides just teaching, which had been the primary way that women could be employed outside the home before that. Uh, the field they landed on from their own conviction, um, very much as uh, progressive Christians, was the field of social work. So the idea um, that the progressive era has a lot of problems from industrialization and immigration and urbanization that, that need fixing and that social work is a new field pioneered at this time that they argue the leaders of women's colleges argue college educated women are particularly good at this. They use a very gendered argument. They say that women are really good at this because they uniquely combine heart like all women and head because they're college educated women. They're the perfect people to figure out how to have compassion on the poor in an intelligent way that actually fixes problems. And they're doing that in part, right, to open up new fields for women, fields that are really central to the new progressive project of American society and politics. But at the same time, by putting so much of the moral formation of students um, angled towards who they can be as women, that limits women's options, too, as well as expanding them. It expands them to social work, but it tries to channel them into particular channels, whereas the earlier evangelical educators while they assumed many women would honestly go on to be teachers, they did leave that open to God's direction and didn't push a particular path in the same kind of way. Okay. So how, so you've got these uh, young people who are, are at college and there's this more gender tracking, a, a general gender tracking in yeah. their education. Yeah. Okay. And then you've got in these colleges, you also have the whys. Yes. Which, which are these service organizations. Yes. And that also adds to socialization into a particular yes. gendered. Talk about that, the women's why, yes. the men's why. And- yes, absolutely. I want to step back and say one thing really fast. Uh, when I was talking about how women are tracked at the time into a particular contribution, men were tracked too. And one of the things that I want the book to make the point of is, right, when we do women's history, it affects, this is the, the project of gender history. It should change the way we tell the traditional narrative. And I say it does. Um, the existence of women's colleges moved men's colleges to put more emphasis and track men, right? So right. men were tracked into the traditional fields of, you know, government, also business, you know, law, things that were reserved for men that would be considered elite. Med- and they medicine, were, medicine. Medicine, of course, yes. Um, and they were pushed away from pioneering in the new fields of social service as an actual profession. Volunteer in it all you want, but don't go into this, like, new field that's half women, right? That doesn't look good for our grads to do. right? So I, I want to argue it limits men as well as limiting women. Right. So a man couldn't, couldn't very well decide he's going to be a nurse. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> uh, uh, Even though he may be very sympathetic and very good at nurturing and have yeah. certain qualities that would make a very good nurse. His he, alma mater would frown on that considerably. Yes, yes correct. Okay. So, uh, so like but the wise. Yeah, Talk about the, the wise. wise. So to clarify for, for listeners, the wise refers to the YMCA as the song, the Young Men's Christian Association, and the parallel organization that only half as many people have ever heard of, the Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA, they were like the 
the college Christian fellowship groups of the era um, that you would associate, you know, today with inner varsity or navigators or campus crusade or something. Um, but they were much broader. They weren't narrowly evangelical groups. Uh, and they themselves shifted from evangelicalism to modernism over time. And the fact that there were two of them, the YMCA and the YWCA, really affected students' lives. They weren't just small organizations. To give a sense of how much this is affecting your average student's life at a state university, so not a denominational college or of any sort, 50% of women belong to the YWCA, 50%. And 20% of men belong to the YMCA. This is a huge impact on students' lives as undergraduates. And initially, when women were first admitted to state colleges and the YWCA hadn't come to campus yet, but the YMCA was already there, some chapters of the YMCA wanted to let women in. And if that had become the dominant model and students' extracurricular religious formation took place in a coeducational setting, I think that would have had a really different impact on students. But instead, um, these two organizations developed side by side. And so women did their religious formation in an all-women setting and men did their extracurricular religious formation in an all-men setting. And those leaders came to have the same sort of attitudes as uh, the professors and administrators we've been talking about, and they tracked students into certain types of professions, just like they were hearing in the classroom and from their college leaders. Okay, so you've got an undergraduate, they graduate from college, and they go out into the world, men and women, who have been sort of molded in very gendered ways. What consequences does they have in the progressive era? So I argue, and you can see if you're convinced by going and reading the final chapter of the book, (laughs) <laughs> that it is, first of all, it's extremely hard to trace absolutely definitively what impact a student's education had on their future life. Um, if you think about what kind of sources would be required to do that, it's tricky. Nevertheless, best I can tell from looking at the sources uh, of what students did while they were undergraduates, of what they said and wrote in the student newspapers and in their journals while they were undergraduates, and in what we know as historians that men and women college graduates went on to do during the progressive era, graduates of colleges really dominated progressive reform, all out of proportion to their numbers in the general population. And they tended to go into separate male and female spheres of reform. I mean, there was overlap to be sure, but settlement houses and social work during the progressive era was dominated by women. Uh, educational uh, pioneering at the higher educational level and still, of course, government positions, women's uh, suffrage was not universal until 1920, uh, became dominated by men. And they're really you do see this tracking phenomenon going on of college graduates and how they contributed to progressive reform. And I argue that that is in part the result of how they came to think about their role in the world as undergraduates. It makes you really think about the important role education has, particularly in young people informing their their future path, and then really having an impact on society. What I wanted to ask you now is what are, the, that what are the long consequences of these changes? I mean, does this account for the fact that, you know, uh, men and women still there's a tendency, not as much, but to go to, into certain majors and not others or not? How yeah. Much, how much of it is, <laughs> you know, you know, they're talking about, you know, things like economics and yep. philosophy are still very male dominated, you know, yep. and women are more in literature. And uh, it, it, is that where's that coming from? Is it because the institutions 
have set it up in such a way that that's how it works or this is, you know, the society creates the institution or or the institution creates the society. You know, it's like a circular. I talk about higher education as a node, right? It is both a a bellwether, uh, a sign of social trends and it creates them. I I think it's both. It's, It's a circle. And one of the things I want to argue in the book is for the centrality of the history of higher education to American history more broadly. I think it's too often shunted off into a sort of side field that we think about as changes is happening internally and we don't interrogate its role in, in some of the bigger questions American historians care about. And I think it's actually very important. And one of the values of studying the history of higher education is that we can see the fact that some of the assumptions we have have not always been true. And one of the big ones has to do with who majors in what. In the 19th century, women dominated uh, undergraduate study of science and men dominated undergraduate study of classics. This is book, and that will flip totally by the end of the. That is very interesting. That is very interesting. Yes. So here's why it was. So originally, the United States, the colonial America, Europe had a set bachelor's curriculum. Um, That curriculum was heavy on the classical languages, Greek and Latin mathematics, some basic natural philosophies, um, scientific stuff, um, and moral philosophy. For a variety of complicated reasons, it's been well covered by other scholars. <laughs> this opens up and shifts in the late 1800s. And you end up with the major system where you have a sort of a basic broad education and then you get to pick a major. That's like the cool new curriculum. And so men gravitate to that. The cool new research uh, when higher educational institutions even become focused on research is the late 1800s. It's taken place in science and men gravitate towards that. Meanwhile, women who've just been able to enter higher education want to prove they can do the thing that was always previously reserved for men, which is classics. So women go into classics and men go into science and it flips. And so I think this can cause us to change our assumptions now of uh, what is a naturally female or naturally male area of study. That's really interesting. Mm hmm. And I think that you can, if you look at science, the history of science, which you know something about, mm-hmm. uh, it seems to me that there's a lot of you. There's a you could give a lot of gendered reasons for why women would go and would be natural at science. Yes, you really could. You know, because uh, in particular, right? Right. You know that they're they're uh, used to observing, and it's it's intangible. Oh, uh, oh yeah. You know it's. It's not all heady, really. You've got to look at something and observe it and attend to it. I mean, it's, about, it's about prestige, right? I mean, what is the field that has the prestige tends to attract um, the men at the time? And what is the field that has the less? If, and then in conversely, it's not even that what doesn't have prestige attracts women. It's that what attracts women comes to lack prestige. Right, exactly. It's like uh, it, this is a totally different field, but uh, when uh, women when women become... Uh, you know, there used to be men were bookkeepers. When women became bookkeepers, men became accountants. When women become accountants, men become CPAs. You know, it's like they, mm-hmm. every time some a women enter a particular field, they keep ratcheting it up the qualifications and and the entry mm-hmm. to a higher yeah. level. Secretary used to be a male position, right? In fact, an elite male position because right. of reading and writing, and yes, uh, and then of course becomes heavily female and lower paid. 
Right. It's like, so women sort of, uh, and a lot of people say this, you know, that women enter something and you just, they ruined it. You know, they ruined it. <laughs> There's a pushback uh, among classics professors and literature professors at men's institutions around the turn of the century against women's entry into higher education because they don't want those fields to become feminized. So, yeah. yeah. This whole thing about feminization of curriculum or feminization of the field is really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, where do you think your, your book would be useful? Well, <laughs> everyone should read it. No, um, I think it's useful to several subsets of historians and then also at least two subsets of people who are not historians. Um, historians, general American historians, I make an argument about how changes in the history of higher education affected American culture, uh, society, and politics during the progressive era. So I, I want to push that higher ed is important for broader American history. I think it's important for both um, historians of women and gender and historians of American religion. It, the intersection of those two things, as you know well, is a, a, a vibrant field, but has not always been so. And there's still a lot of areas where women's historians don't incorporate the significance of women's religious beliefs into their understanding of the development of um, women and gender in American history and vice versa, right? Where American religious historians aren't thinking about how changes in women's roles and understandings of gender are affecting the changes they're talking about. This book talks about uh, how they're affecting each other and in a way that has a big effect on um not only the intellectual training of Americans, but also what those Americans go forth and do and what society looks like. Because when you have a, when you have a, a, a change in a gender system, uh, people tend to come up with religious reasons to justify it. Yes. You know, yes. so there's a, the, the, you be, people begin to read like the scripture or the text differently in order to kind of say, well, this is really the way God wants it. Yes. And I, I point out places in the book where I think that that's going in both directions, mm-hmm. where you have ways that people start to read it that way because it's happening in society. And particularly if you identify what God is doing very closely with social changes, um, then you're going to say, oh, well, then this must be how we're, we should interpret what God's doing. And there are a few cases that I highlight where I think that actually the power of a religious conviction can cut through that. Uh, for better or for worse, depending on your assessment, um, but where those ideas actually have some power to change uh, and push back against the gendered assumptions, whether they be egalitarian gendered assumptions or um, heavily tracking gender assumptions. Yeah, I think you, you know that, that, that those people who carry those kind of messages tend to be the prophetic ones, and uh, for the bulk of the the person in the pew, yes, that's not going. They're going to go with whatever's been taught to them. Yes, but if you've got a prophetic person at the head of your school yeah. or the head of your church, right. that can actually send your congregation or your students in a certain direction. Uh, okay. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about this today about your book? Uh, anything you a real point that we've missed that we something that you want to cover that we haven't talked about? Hmm. Great question. Um, to answer, I wanted to circle back and answer um, your question about implications for people who are not, you know, h- historians, perhaps. So. I talk in the conclusion about what I think, how I think it should challenge us to think as educators today, uh, whether we are you know, writing for students or teaching students or administrators um, of an educational institution. 
basically, I don't think that any one of the groups that I look at is perfect. Uh, we have to think really carefully about the trade-offs that we make when we emphasize one thing or another. Um, if we go uh, and we want to really emphasize you know, uh, institutions that are religiously oriented, that really emphasize a particular path towards getting right with God, um, can by tr- making a person's relationship with God more important than other aspects of their identity can push back on gendered assumptions in helpful ways, but they tend to cut out students who don't hold that religious conviction and that it's not a comfortable place for those students. Um, institutions that have a broader outlook and they want to have a strong moral statement on exactly how um, society should look and how their students should fit into society. They can pull in people of a broader religious um, or no religious orientation, but they'll often track those students into doing a particular thing. If you just go all willy-nilly, like the 1920s had a tendency to do, and let um, not track students as carefully and not uh, make religious restrictions, oftentimes those institutions lacked any kind of a moral push behind education, and they just gave the message non-intentionally that education was merely functional, that it didn't give you any obligation to serve the public good, that it just allowed you to get a good job. Uh, I don't think it's an easily solvable problem, but I think it's something that we all need to think through uh, and try to mitigate the negative tendencies of whatever our institution's bent is. Yeah, well, basically what you're saying is when uh, institutions come up with policies or vision statements or mission statements or whatever they're coming up with, mm-hmm. there's all these unintended consequences. Because yeah. I'm sure yeah. that the people who came up with, you know, okay, this is, we're going to emphasize that we're going to, uh, train men for government and business and women for for doing these kind of social things they probably thought they was this was a, the best thing they could come up with they didn't probably yeah. didn't realize what they at the time what they were doing and and so now even today when making policies about anything yep. we're making policies not realizing that there are things that are going to happen that we didn't intend to happen yes and so just i think History is a great cautionary tale for all of us, as, as you would agree, as a historian, right? <laughs> and thinking about what have been some of the past unintended consequences of different educational philosophies can help us think through our present. Well, thank you so much, uh, Andrea. You have been very generous with your time. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it's been a delight. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. You can contact me at lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>